So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Today's episode of Commons is brought to you by All We Leave Behind, the new book from Carol Off. It's a reporter's journey into the lives of others, published by Random House Canada and on bookstore shelves now. Jagmeet, <laughs> I think I got it now. Uh, thank you, you so much it, for joining us. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, you're one of the candidates for NDP leader. One of the questions we're sort of opening everybody up with is uh, a question about how they feel the campaign is going and broadly uh, what they think that they're bringing to the race that's unique. Would anyone ever say that the campaign is not going well? I feel like that's the only thing everyone's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but... But I, I want to be unique, but it is. It's going really well. I'm really excited by the incredible uptake of our message, the engagement. We're getting people showing up in massive numbers. We just had actually three recent Jigmeet and greets. One was in Toronto, the other one was in Ottawa, and then the next one was in Montreal. And then the all three of them just blew our expectations in terms of numbers of people that showed up. We had in Ottawa, like close to 300 people come out to a packed art gallery. And we had like over 220, 30 people to a cafe in Toronto. And then the Montreal one was pretty packed up too. We had a cafe dispatch, filled it up. So we're getting like amazing numbers of people coming out to our meeting greets, which is exciting. So the Trudeau government has done pretty well on their performative politics, one might say. Their polling numbers are still strong and they haven't really dipped. How would you, as a leader, point out the Trudeau government's failings? Well, I hope to do more than just that. I feel like people focus sometimes too much on just pointing out the failures of a government. I really want to propose and inspire people with a better alternative. Instead of just pointing out the failures to follow through on things on electoral reform, I really want to ignite the imagination of Canadians around what our democracy would look like if we actually had proportional representation. You know, people would be able to vote without worrying about vote splitting. People would not worry about strategic voting. People could just vote how they want and they could have the confidence of knowing that their voice would be reflected in parliament. On climate change, we could ensure that we actually achieve our goals and our international leaders on tackling climate change, on reconciliation. We could really lead. I really hope to expose the failings of the government but in a way of talking about what we would propose as an alternative to inspire people. 
That actually sounds a lot like your message. You know, you've been really hopeful for, you know, this love and courage slogan. One thing about the NDP is a lot of people say the party has sort of floundered to continue that message in the wake of uh, Jack Layton's passing. How do you think you could um, help rebuild the NDP's image as as a more hopeful party as opposed to one that has maybe been a little bit less so under its current leadership? Well, that's that's what our campaign is all about. That's how we've inspired people. We've we've signed up forty seven thousand new members, hit all sorts of great great results in terms of our fundraising because we're inspiring people. We're ex- making people excited about politics. We're reaching out beyond just the typical or traditional partisan folks and reaching out to people that aren't partisan that haven't really been involved in politics but have been activists in their communities, have been leaders in their communities, and I'm really excited about what we can do. In the next two years, imagine what we've just done in it's about two and a half months in this leadership campaign. If we took this team and continue with the work, we could build a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful thing in, in two years. So some people have painted you as a centrist candidate. Would you agree? And where on the lefty scale would you say a government under your leadership would end up? Well, I'm a bold and, and progressive, or I'm a proud, bold progressive. I believe that we need to absolutely put people front in mind and ensure that all our policies are based on social justice. I've been a champion on issues of social justice, whether it's economic, precarious employment in terms of temporary job agencies provincially, uh, on racial justice with carding. I've taken on corporations with the auto insurance issues that we have in Ontario. So I'm unequivocally and unapologetically very much in favor of putting policies forward that benefit everyday people. And I don't have any qualms about it. I don't apologize for it. So I'm not trying to win an award in terms of my positions, but I want to inspire people that we can build a more just Canada. And yet you are on some issues a little bit more centrist than some of your opponents. Uh, For example, on the living wage issue, you're very specific about the $15 number that uh, in our interview with Nikki Ashton, she was telling us it's too low. So why is that, you know, the the practical number that you've settled on in your campaign? Uh, I'm really building on the work of a lot of incredible activists in the labor movement and in progressive circles who've forwarded the 15 in fairness as a as a campaign around what would fairness look like. So it's not just minimum wage. I've also proposed some significant and specific proposals around how we can tackle precarious work, how we can end the exploitation of temporary job agencies at the federal level. I talked about reinstating fair hours and wages labor act that would ensure that there's a high standard of labor protection for workers. And so I've coupled that with uh, minimum wage guarantees, but, uh, my policies are, are inspired by progressives and, and folks that have done a lot of work on these issues. Part of the NDP's orange wave back in 2011 was Quebec. And mm-hmm. would you say that your support is too concentrated? Are you worried about Quebec at all? Well, I would say people talk a lot about a Quebec. And I think Quebec is incredibly important. I think it's a province that is the one of the most open to new democratic messages of social justice, tackling inequality, fighting against climate change. It's a province that's very receptive to these these ideas. It's one of the most progressive provinces in terms of childcare and tuition fees in the country. And people talk about the importance, but they just talk about it. What we've done is on the ground, we've signed up more members than any other campaign. A third of the current NDP membership in Quebec are members that we signed up. So 
it's a province that not only do I talk about its importance, but I've backed it up with organizing. Your, some of your opponents have been uh, a little bit softer on this Quebec issue of Bill 62, which could limit uh, religious symbols when accessing public services. Some of them have come out and clarified and felt that they were misrepresented in their in their comments, but they still seem to talk a little bit about Quebec's special relationship with the idea of uh, sovereignty and religious symbols. How have you reacted to that? Because I, I think some of your opponents' co- comments have been a little bit wishy-washy at times. I've been very clear. We can't pick and choose when it comes to human rights. The topic of human rights, the discussion of human rights hasn't always been comfortable or popular. When women fought for the right to vote, the right to choose, when the LGTB community fought for their rights of equality and marriage equality, when we challenge issues around racial discrimination and systemic discrimination, these topics are uncomfortable. They are sometimes unpopular, but we know it's the right thing to do. So for me, there's really no way around it. No one should face discrimination based on any grounds that are that are um, inherent to that human being, to that individual. And uh, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, religious beliefs, political viewpoints, no one should face discrimination. And I've said unequivocally, we need to defend the rights of all people. So with respect to Bill 62, it's something that I'm very confident the existing very strong Charter of Rights and Freedoms that exists in Quebec is going to provide a tool for people to challenge it if it is passed. We know that uh, the legislation that exists in Quebec is actually very clear on what grounds uh, should not be discriminated on. People should not be discriminated on a, a wide variety of grounds that are covered by the Charter in Quebec. And I'm confident that the law will not, uh, that the The existing framework will ensure that people's rights are protected. And I've been unequivocal about that. So I'm a black woman, and I love seeing a brown man running for leadership of a federal party. Yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But when I, you know, see debates about religious symbolism in Quebec, and I see highly qualified female ministers being called Barbie, and I see the rise of white supremacy in Canada, I am worried for you. I worry that white Canadians aren't ready. So what makes you think that they are? You know what? It's kind of two things. One is, even if people aren't ready, that doesn't mean we have we can't try. When when Obama ran, people probably thought maybe America isn't ready. But you never know if you can break a barrier unless you try to. So I think we have to. It's incumbent on us to always and in every way we can push past barriers, break glass ceilings. And what happens as a result, it inspires others. I'm only here today because other people dreamed of breaking barriers. The first racialized person was a woman, actually, to run for the leadership of the NDP, uh, Rosemary Brown. She put her name out there and she came a close second. These are people that inspire people like me. And I'm hoping that my candidacy and hopefully my victory will inspire a whole host of people in their own communities, in their fields, even in politics to say, you know what, maybe I haven't seen myself reflected, but I'm going to take the step forward. And I really think that it's not a question of if people are ready. It's a question that you know, Canada needs this. This is something that we all need to do in every field, every area. We need to continually push boundaries and fight for more justice. That's good because I'm, I'm planning on running for mayor of Toronto. So this is this is helpful. Let's take a moment on Commons to thank our second sponsor, the latest book by CBC journalist and co-host of As It Happens, Carol Auth. The book is titled All We Leave Behind, A Reporter's Journey into the Lives of Others, and it's on bookstore shelves now. I actually genuinely loved this book, and I'm not just saying that because they were a sponsor. And it was a pleasure to have Carol Off come to the 
Common Studios to chat a bit about this book. She told us about going to the Afghan war in 2002 when it was just heating up and her role there with one family that would change all their lives. I was looking for somebody who could do help me with an expose we wanted to produce, which was about warlords in Afghanistan and the power and influence they had. But no one that we encountered would talk about, no one would say anything about these these really horrible men, and uh, they're, they're, they're just ruthless. And we found Assad Aryabal, who had been a former commander in one of the parts of this one really notorious warlord's militia, and he was willing to talk to us and tell us what he knew. So it was in what we, we call in journalism, he was a get. And soon after I left, the warlord came after him. I looked back over my shoulder, which I rarely do, and saw that I I had left a mess behind. The book is All We Leave Behind, A Reporter's Journey into the Lives of Others by Carol Off. And this is brought to you by Random House Canada. Carol, thank you so much. Okay, so another person who just recently broke some big boundaries and, and ceilings in Manitoba politics is Wab Canoe, just became leader of the NDP party there. You and your opponent, Nikki Ashton, have gone a little bit back and forth on on uh, Mr. Canoe, especially given some of the allegations of uh, domestic violence that have been made through the media. I feel like we should stress that there has not been any criminal proceedings at this point, and these are just reported allegations. But uh, just curious if you wanted to um, explain a little bit about why you were supportive of him and how you feel about some of the backlash to that support? Well, I mean, it's it's really uh, pretty straightforward. I've said very clearly when asked this, as soon as it came up, I said, I believe survivors unequivocally. And I specifically, I believe Tara. Uh, we have to make sure that any survivor is able to come forward, is able to speak, and is not further victimized or, or subject to further violence because they want to share their story and they want to, and they have the full right to be able to do so. So I fully and unequivocally support and believe all survivors. And right now, Manitoba, the NDP membership, have chosen a leader, and we will continue to move forward. Uh, So speaking of survivors, you spoke at an event right after Mandy Gray spoke, and she had just won in court. A judge just convicted a man for raping her, and she was talking about her experience as a survivor. And you followed that with a story about how honored you were back when you were a criminal defense lawyer to get a guy acquitted from a rape charge. So my question is, did that choice of yours demonstrate the sensitivity and judgment a leader needs to have? No, I I don't think it demonstrated the sensitivity uh, at all. I think that was a poor choice in terms of sensitivity. Uh, I think I was thinking too much like a lawyer and I was invited to speak as a, as a previous lawyer and that was a mistake. To me, what was important about that case was the access to justice issues. It was a racialized uh, young black man that was charged and there was issues of uh, his, his innocence in that case, but it was uh, tone deaf to the crowd, uh, inappropriate given the timing. And the issues that I wanted to raise could have been raised in another way. The case was one of my most difficult cases. uh, And there was some significant evidence that were about identity and uh, not in any way to to challenge the actual complainant. And it was something that it was a difficult case that it it opened my eyes up into the eyes of uh, young black people having some serious barriers to getting legal representation. But uh, absolutely, it was um, it was bad judgment. And I learned a lot from it. And I hope to to continue to learn anytime I'm faced with with things like this, where I can I can see how 
I can improve as a human being and improve as a as a leader. And all that experience that you're bringing to the table in the justice system has has really informed your platform. You have a really thorough, detailed vision for how to improve our justice system because of all of your experience as as a defense lawyer. But if there was one thing that you could change immediately, if you could wave a magic wand right now from the sidelines and it would pass, you know, whatever legislature it needed to and come into force, what what would it be? It's hard to choose one thing, so I can choose two. One is I've seen firsthand how difficult it is through different research that I've done and through different uh, being in an observer of different cases and also hearing the stories of survivors, how difficult it is and unfair it is for uh, survivors of gender-based violence and particularly sexual assaults that the whole process resubmits people to further violence, victimizes people. And I, I would love to see a change in the way that uh, courts handle that. So that's one. And the second one, which I think is a fundamental shift, would be to decriminalize the possession of controlled substances for personal use. We find, and I find, that what happens is people who are being charged with personal possession are essentially, for the most part, people that are either facing addiction issues, facing uh, mental health issues, or people who are in poverty. And to me, poverty, mental health, and addictions doesn't sound like a criminal justice problem. To me, that sounds like a social justice problem. And we should be we should be addressing it with a social justice lens, meaning harm reduction, rehabilitation services, support services. Uh, criminalization is not the path. It doesn't actually help our society. So, I, I mean, there's so much evidence to support the idea of full decriminalization of all illicit mm-hmm. substances. But you, I mean, you can almost imagine the headlines. You you got a taste of them when you just raised this idea, you know, uh, decriminalizing heroin in the middle of the fentanyl crisis. Um, people with the hysteria we're seeing around the legalization of marijuana. How would you practically approach selling uh, the benefit of decriminalization to people who don't see, you know, the reports coming out of Portugal and other places where it is working? Yeah, well, we have to talk about what our goals are. And when we talk about the fentanyl crisis, our goal is we don't want people to die. We want to stop the thousands of people that are dying. Well, our criminalization is not actually achieving that goal. Another goal is we want to reduce people who reduce the use of illicit substances that harm society and that harm people. If that's our goal, our approach hasn't achieved that goal. It hasn't actually reduced the use. So I make a plea to people, if we really are serious about reducing the use of these harmful substances, if we really want to save lives and protect people, then let's have policies that actually achieve that outcome. So why won't you pursue a seat in the House of Commons right away if you win? What's holding you back? Well, I haven't said, <laughs> well, I haven't said that I won't pursue, like I haven't ruled it out. I've just said that I'm comfortable right, with, right now without a seat and other great leaders have not had seats and have done phenomenal work. One of the most successful leaders in the NDP in the history of the party was Jack Layton, who was elected as a leader of the party without having a seat. And I'm, I'm confident that I can do some incredible work across Canada, in communities, hearing issues, proposing our ideas, connecting with people, and it doesn't require me having a seat to do that. If an opportunity does come up that makes sense, that's authentic to the relationship I have with the community and it makes sense to to do strategically, I'm open to hearing people's opinions on that. So one thing we're asking every candidate is, outside of your platform points, we're hearing a lot about reconciliation from this government today. The prime minister actually just spoke at the UN about reconciliation again. For you, what does reconciliation in the next 150 years really look like? Well, it's really understanding our federalist nature as a nation. 
we are a federalist country. And that means we're comprised of provinces, territories, and nations. And to really understand that, that means that every partner, every component of this relationship, of this of this structure, has to be treated with the respect and dignity they deserve. And one of the key partners in this structure that's not, that a particular partner that's not receiving justice are the nations that make up the indigenous people. So those nations have to be treated as nations. Things like UNDRIP, when we talk about UNDRIP, it's got to come from a place knowing that we respect the rights of indigenous people as nations. And if there's a fellow nation, you have to have the consent of a nation to be able to do something on on that land. The other key piece for me, I think it's so important, would be um, acknowledging or addressing or confronting the legacy of genocide, direct and cultural, that's been perpetrated against Indigenous people in Canada. It's a legacy that we have to confront. And it's not that we have to be bogged down by it, but we have to confront it. And then moving forward, when we address reconciliation, we do it through the lens of there's a significant injustice that we have a responsibility to to rectify. And that means making sure we protect Indigenous languages and not just have legislation, but also have funding. It means that Indigenous children should get equal funding at a basic minimum. It means that we need to in, uh, ensure that there's clean drinking water, that there's access to education and other opportunities, that there is a support of the way of life, the language, the culture, so that we can revive an important element of of the Federalist Nation of Canada. So the, the campaign so far has been quite civil and quite positive. And so we'd like to finish on a positive note and ask you what you think the best qualities are of your fellow leadership candidates. Easy. So Nikki Ashton brings a lot of passion and she's taken some really bold steps. I also believe in the free tuition proposal that she put forward, but she put forward first. So she definitely gets credit for championing that in this race. I really like and ever knows Charlie's commitment to Indigenous justice. He's been a, a strong champion on that. So I commend him for that. And I think it's been a phenomenal addition to the campaign. And Guy Caron, everyone talks about being a policy person. He truly is someone that understands policy. He is an econom- uh, economist and his understanding of the depth of things like progressive tax reform and his basic income guarantee are all testaments to his deep knowledge as a policy professional, policy person. That sounds like you have ideas what you might do with them in a <laughs> in a shadow cabinet. I would love to get into it with you about Maybe. divisions of powers over the tuition issue, but I think we're we're out of time here today. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, candidate for the federal NDP leadership, thank you so much for your time today with Canada Land Commons. Thank you. It was awesome. I enjoyed it. That's your Commons episode for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Follow me at D Rodrigue on Twitter. That's D E E R O D E R I Q U E. And I'm Ashley Chinati. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashley Chinati. That's Ashley with an L E Y, last name C S A N A D Y. And I'm Ryan McMahon. Follow me at R M Comedy. That's R M Comedy. Follow us on Twitter at Canada Land Commons, Canada Land CMNS. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. 
Special thanks this week to Rohit Joseph in Vancouver and J.P. Davidson in Ottawa for their assistance with this week's interviews. Folks, Commons is the most downloaded Canadian political podcast in the country, and we owe it all to you. Please do us a favor between now and our next episode in two weeks. Each of you try to convince two friends or colleagues to subscribe to the show. We'd really appreciate it. The producer of Commons is Russell Gregg. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please support us. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.